0: All right, Revelation 4 and 5. I think a good place to start is a basketball quote. Bill Bradley was a great college basketball player and an NBA basketball player. He was known at times for having a no-look shot. Not a hook shot, not a sort of a quick turnaround, but just a no-look shot. And he was asked about this shot, and he said, when you've played basketball for a while... You don't need to look at the basket when you're in close like this. You develop a sense of where you are. And I think that quote is a helpful way of thinking about Bible study. When you study the Bible, you need to have a good sense of where you are in the Bible. You need to know what's come before it. You need to know what's coming after it. And that's certainly true when you study the book of Revelation. The more familiar you can become, with all that's come before in the Bible, the more comfortable you will be in the book of Revelation. And one of the things that you're going to notice starting tonight, chapter 4 and 5, and then as we move through the book, is that basically everything in Revelation is pulling from the Old Testament, sometimes pulling from other places in the New Testament, but many times Pulling from the Old Testament. And the more familiar you can become with Scripture in its entirety, the more familiar and the more comfortable you'll be with the book of Revelation. So I want to just start by reminding you of some obvious things. The book of Revelation is the very last book in the Bible. We're at the very end of the canon of Scripture. We've gone all the way through the Old Covenant, we've made our way through the Gospels, through the epistles, and now we're at the book of Revelation. This book is literally an apocalypse. We call it in English revelation, but the Greek word is apocalypse. In our American brains, we think apocalypse. That's what happens at the end. So an apocalyptic movie is an end of the world movie. And there's certainly things in the book of Revelation that pertain to the end. But that's not the fundamental idea of what apocalypse is in the Bible. Apocalypse in the Bible is not telling you about the end. Apocalypse in the Bible is telling you what is real. What is real. Not what you can see with your eyes, but what is really real that you can only see with the eyes of faith. So we're going to come back to that idea over and over and over again tonight that the book of Revelation as Apocalypse is telling us what is real, what's more real than what they show on Fox News and CNN, what's more real than anything you'll find on social media, what's more real than what you can touch with your hands and experience with your senses, this book is showing us things that are real. So, let's talk about Revelation 4 and 5 together, just by way of introduction, because when you move from the Chapters we talked about last week, 2 and 3, to the chapters we're talking about this week, 4 and 5, there's a lot of change between those two units of writing. So, Revelation 4 and 5 introduces a change in genre, shifting from epistle to vision, and the vision is expressed in poetry. So, you'll notice in Revelation 4, 1... We read, after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. This is the second vision in the book of Revelation. The first vision happened in chapter 1, where John was on the island of Patmos, and he had a vision of the resurrected Jesus. And you remember in chapter 1, when John had that vision, he fell down at Jesus' feet as if he were dead. That's the first vision, and that vision continues to be regurgitated and recycled all the way through the book. Here in chapter 4, we're introduced to the second vision, and we're moving from letters to a vision, and the vision is described in poetic language. So, a couple of quotes, one from Michael Gorman. The prophetic messages to the churches and to the church as a whole are complete, Seven words, each directed toward a specific context, yet applicable to the Christian church's one body and to specific congregations in various times and places. The book of Revelation now undergoes a dramatic shift from the kind of text we understand fairly easily. That's a letter or an epistle. They're pretty straightforward. You read them like you read the book of Romans or the book of 1 Peter or the book of Hebrews. It's just straightforward information. But now, the relatively straightforward record of pastoral prophetic oracles to the kind of text that may confuse, scare, or distress us. And basically, what Gorman is saying is when you move from Revelation 2 or 3 to 4 and 5, you get into the kind of stuff that we typically associate with the book of Revelation in this second vision. Nancy Guthrie. Nancy Guthrie, her book, Blessed, is the book our ladies have been working through. They've made it halfway through the book of Revelation. They'll finish the book of Revelation in the spring. She says this, as you think about Revelation 4 and 5, is Jesus worth all the effort and pain and sacrifice it will take to overcome the pull of the world around me To seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. If you were here last week when we talked about 2 and 3, the seven letters to the churches, all of those churches were called to overcome or to conquer. If you will overcome, if you will conquer, there was a promise given to each of those churches. So the question when you get to 4 and 5 is, is it worth it? All the things that Jesus is asking us to do in those seven letters... All the conquering, all the overcoming, all the being faithful unto death, all the standing up for the truth when no one else will do it. Is it worth it in the end? That's the question that's being answered when you move to Revelation 4 and 5. So, change in genre. Next, Revelation 4 and 5 introduces a change in setting, shifting from earth to heaven. So, in Revelation 2 and 3, these letters to the churches, we talked about, Last month, they're real churches. You could visit them, seven of them, on the mail circuit, through Asia Minor, through the province of Asia. Now the scene shifts to heaven. Schreiner explains it like this: following the letters to the seven churches, the scene shifts to heaven where God sits on the throne. Chapter four is foundational for the remainder of the book. And I just want to make a couple of quick points about the word heaven in the Bible. This is something I talked uh, with the students in Kenya last week as we studied the Old Testament and we talked about the book of Genesis and creation. What does the word heaven mean in the Bible? Basically, there's three meanings, three possible meanings to that word. Number one, the heavens are the places where the birds fly around. So, up in the sky. Hot air balloons are in the heaven, airplanes fly in the heavens, the birds fly in the heavens. Secondly, what we would call outer space. Where is the moon? Where are the stars? Where is the sun? That's not in our atmosphere where the birds fly, but it is the heavens. The third possible meaning for heaven is the place where God dwells. The place where God dwells. And you'll notice in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, as John begins to describe this vision, he hears a voice speaking like a trumpet, and the voice says, come up here. He's being called up to heaven, not where the birds fly, not where the moon floats around and orbits the earth, but he's being called up to the very presence of God. One of the things uh, noted by Nancy Piercy is that when you read this vision in Revelation 4 and 5, it is markedly different than many of the stories people tell when they say, I died and I went to heaven. And God sent me back to tell you about heaven. People write books about this sort of thing. They make movies about this sort of thing. They write blogs and go on speaking tours about all these things they claim to have experienced in heaven. And you can take all those stories and lump them into one basket. And generally, those stories are very comforting, uh, very pleasant. They're very man-centered. All of the beauty of heaven sort of centers around us and our needs and our wants and our wishes. And Piercy makes the observation that this vision of heaven, Revelation 4 and 5, does not center around us, and it's not entirely comforting. It's actually quite disturbing. And there's things in here that shock us and unnerve us, and we're not really sure how to take in and explain. It's just a different view of the place where God dwells. So things that change in Revelation 4 and 5. The genre changes, the setting changes. Next, there's a change in focus, shifting from the people of God to God And to the Lamb. And as we read about the throne room, and as we read about the one who sits on the throne, and as we read about the Lamb, all of these images would have been very familiar to Roman citizens who knew about the imperial court, and they knew about thrones, and they knew about throne rooms, and they knew about attendants, and they knew about crowns, and all of these images would have been very, very vivid for people living in the Roman Empire. Another change, Revelation 4 and 5 introduces a change in voice, shifting from Jesus in the Spirit speaking to God's people worshiping. So this is just interesting between chapter 2 and 3 compared to 4 and 5. In chapter 2 and 3, it's Jesus and the Spirit speaking to the church, and the focus is on the people of God. In chapter 4 and 5, the focus is on God, not the people of God. And the one speaking is not necessarily God, but it's creatures speaking back to God. So chapter 2 and 3, Jesus and the Spirit are speaking to God's people, and God's people, the church, is the focus. 4 and 5, the focus is off of us completely, and the focus is on the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. And it's God's creatures who are speaking back to Him in prayer and in worship. Revelation 4 and 5 go together. That should be obvious by now. We keep talking about 2 and 3 as a unit. 4 and 5 are also a unit. Gorman makes this point. Derek Thomas makes this point. I won't read those quotes to you. I do want you to note that in Revelation chapter 4, John experiences what we would call a theophany. And in Revelation chapter 5... John experiences what we would call a Christophany. So a theophany is a physical, visible manifestation or appearance of God to his people. So in chapter 4, there's this appearance of God in heaven, and John is able to take this in. It's a theophany, an appearance of God, a manifestation of God's presence. In chapter 5, it's a Christophany. Christ is the focus. It's not the one who sits on the throne that's at the center of the vision, like chapter 4, but in chapter 5, the center of the vision is on Jesus, and so we would call that a Christophany. When you combine these two chapters, the imagery comes from the temple and from the throne room. It's temple imagery and there's throne room imagery. And really, if you just go back and read Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel 1 and Daniel 7, almost all of the imagery, not all of it, but a good part of the imagery, you'll find right there in the Old Testament. Isaiah 6 is a vision. Ezekiel 1 is a vision. Daniel 7 is a vision. It's a vision of God on the throne. And all of these images find their precedence in the Old Testament in one way or another. Uh, One last note as we begin. The combined vision of Revelation 4 and 5 contains five songs. So these songs are kind of the structure to the vision. There's five of them. Song number one is about God's holiness. Song number two is about God being the creator. Song number three is about the lamb. Song number four is about the lamb. Song number five is about God being both the creator and the Redeemer. So these five songs sort of punctuate our walk through Revelation 4 and 5. All right, that's the introduction. Let's jump in with Revelation chapter 4. My plan is that we'll read these two chapters just a few verses at a time. We'll read a few verses, talk about them, read a few verses, talk about them. And my aim is to walk with you through 4 and 5 to explain some of the imagery and make sure that we're all on the same page, to see how these songs punctuate the vision, the two visions together. And then at the end, we'll come back and we'll make some points of application to our lives. So look with me, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance. We'll read that appearance here in just a little bit. But just make note, there is one sitting on this throne in heaven. So two helpful warnings from Tom Schreiner. I put these in your notes. Schreiner says this, John's vision continues with the revelation of the throne room of God. The language here is full of symbolism. It must not be interpreted literally as if we have a literal picture of God's throne room. Clearly, he also says this is not the rapture of the church. Just by way of honesty and full disclosure, many people who advocate for a rapture of the church before the tribulation look at Revelation 4.1 where John is told to come up here and they say that's the rapture. That's the church being called up to heaven. I think that's a prime example of eisegesis. Taking what you already believe and reading it into the text. Rather than exegeting the text, listening to the text, and then determining what it is you believe. Revelation 4.1 is not in any way, shape, or form describing the rapture of the church before the tribulation. You can hold to that view, but you can't base it on Revelation 4-1 like a lot of people try to do. Revelation 4-1, Schreiner is right, is John being called up to have this vision. And he makes the point, this is not the rapture of the church. What happens here is confined to John alone. Indeed, the book of Revelation never mentions a rapture. The phrase, after this, refers to the next vision Not the sequence in which the events occurred or will occur in history. This is a very important reminder as you read the book of Revelation. John uses some temporal language like, after this I saw, after this. Americans tend to read those words and say, John is giving us a road map. He's giving us a timeline of how world history is going to play out. But That's not what he's doing. That's not how apocalypse works in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. What John is simply saying is, this is the next thing that I saw. This is the next part of the vision that I experienced. It may or it may not have any chronological relation to the previous vision that he saw. So, John prefaces this whole vision with three experiences. Just note these truths. John saw an open door... In heaven, John was told to come up to heaven, and John says he was in the Spirit. Saw an open door, he's told to come up, and he's in the Spirit. What John is describing is remarkably similar to what Ezekiel describes in Ezekiel chapter 1. John's experience is almost exactly like Ezekiel's visionary experience In Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel opens and the prophet says, the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. John says, I looked and there's an open door in heaven. So it's very similar in the way they describe these things. John's experience is not only like Ezekiel's experience, it's also like Paul's experience. Remember, Paul said that he had an experience where he was caught up to the third heaven. The third heaven, not where the birds fly, not where the moon is, but to the very presence of God. He's not saying there's levels in heaven and you get to a certain level by a certain rank. He's saying not, that, not the birds, not the moon, but to the very presence of God. That's where he was caught up to and he had visions and revelations. He talks about that in 1 Corinthians 12. I want you to note that John uses the phrase in the spirit Four times. Four is an important number for John. Numbers are important. Four is an important number. Four times he says he was in the Spirit. Chapter 1, there's a vision. Chapter 4 and 5, there's a vision. Chapter 17, chapter 21, each visions. There's an important key phrase where John is saying, I was in the Spirit. God is revealing something special and unique to him, and those are important Uh, structure pieces for the book of Revelation. So the first thing John sees in this vision is not just a throne, but an occupied throne. An occupied throne. This throne in heaven represents kingship, it represents sovereignty, and it represents omnipotence. All of that idea of power and majesty and sovereignty and being a king wrapped up in this image of a throne. This idea of a throne has to be central to the way that you think about heaven. Piercy says this, as John wrote from Patmos, the emperor Domitian sat on the Roman throne and he demanded to be addressed as Lord and God, which meant that those who called Jesus Lord and God We're being severely persecuted and even put to death. But John was invited to see the one who is truly on the throne of the universe. Do you see how Revelation works as apocalypse? With your eyes, it looks like Domitian is on the throne. But this Revelation, this apocalypse is pulling back the curtain so that John now with the eyes of faith can see Domitian's not on the throne. Jesus is on the throne. God is on the throne. What looks to be true in this life may or may not be true in the ultimate sense. Revelation helps you to see not necessarily what's coming in the future, but what's real in the present. I'll be honest with you. I have to remind myself of this when I read the book of Revelation. Because of the way that I was originally taught as a young person, I default into reading this book thinking future, 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 end times, end times, end times, end times. And I have to stop and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is what's true now. This is what's real today, even if it doesn't look like it's real today. It will be true in the future, but it's true today. And it's not just information for the future. Schreiner says something similar. God's throne is in heaven, communicating the truth that God reigns over all, and thus the suffering faced by believers doesn't indicate that God has lost control over the universe. It appears to believers as if Satan and the beast rule over the world. But in actuality, God rules over all. That's what apocalypse does. It shows you what is real. Let's talk about the word throne. You will find the word throne more than 40 times in the book of Revelation, 19 of them are in Revelation 4 and 5. So if you want to understand what is this vision about in Revelation 4 and 5, there's a word on repeat 19 times, throne, 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 over and over and over again. John's trying to drub it into our heads. And the word lamb is found 28 times in Revelation. We've talked about this number 28. Seven times 4. Get your multiplication tables out. 7, a complete number. 4, a complete number. You multiply them together, and the word lamb shows up 28 times in the book of Revelation. Notice what Gorman says here. This is really important. Together, these images, the throne and the lamb. The throne and the lamb. They constitute the hermeneutical or the interpretive key to the entire book. Now, there's a lot of crazy stuff in Revelation. But if you get a solid grasp of the throne and you have a solid grasp of the Lamb, you have, in essence, the key to understanding the whole book. They reveal in pictures the essential theology of the book of Revelation God the Creator reigns and is worthy of our complete devotion. Jesus, the faithful, slaughtered Lamb of God, reigns with God, equally worthy of our complete devotion. And then I gave you a quote from Osborne. The throne room scene is a kaleidoscope of Old Testament images with no single one dominant. This chapter is reflected often in the rest of the book. The throne of God dominates the book. I like that quote from Osborne because he's saying all of these images come from the Old Testament. And they come together in chapter 4 and 5 to form a foundational piece of understanding the book of Revelation. So let's read about the setting starting in verse 3. He who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. The throne itself and the elders and the creatures and all that. Let's just talk about the setting and we'll move quickly here. The rainbow calls back to the book of Genesis. The story of Noah and the flood. It's a story of God's mercy to Noah and his family. It's a story of God's judgment on the world. Guess what the book of Revelation is? It's a story of God's mercy to his people and God's judgment on those who dwell on the earth. The same themes in Genesis 9. The story of Noah and the flood play out in the book of Revelation. The lightning and the thunder call back to other theophanies in the Bible. So I've just given you a few references here. You can go back and read these. In the Old Testament, when God appears to his people, many times it's described with lightning and thunder and this loud imagery of a storm. All of that describes God manifesting his presence. The seven torches of fire. John tells us, are the seven spirits of God, which in the book of Revelation is a reference to the Holy Spirit. The image of the Holy Spirit is fire you see in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. The sea of glass. I'm going to be honest with you. I have no idea what it is. And throughout the book of Revelation, if I don't know something, I'm just going to tell you I have no idea. When I have a pretty good grasp on what something is, I'm going to tell you this is what it is. And when I don't know, I'm going to tell you I don't know. So I'll tell you the options and you can pick one you like. The sea might represent God's holiness. The root idea of holiness is being set apart. And this sea separates God. So a similar idea is that the sea might represent an impassable barrier between God and humans. Those are similar views. Maybe it's God's holiness. Maybe it's a barrier. Thirdly, the sea might represent the sovereignty of God. How so? When well, the Old Testament, the sea is an image of chaos. The Hebrew people were not sailors. They did not like going out on the ocean. They were terrified of the waters. It was uncontrollable. It was chaotic. This sea is like glass. It's completely still. And you think about Jesus calming the Sea of Galilee and it becoming still. So maybe this is an image of God's sovereignty. The sea might be a beautiful part of the vision. It might be nothing more than that. John saw something beautiful and he's trying to describe it. It looked like a sea of glass. I do think that the sea is pictured in the tabernacle and the temple, both of which had a basin of water outside the holy place. And I don't want to chase this rabbit very much, but I just want to remind you that the book of Hebrews says that the tabernacle was a shadow. It was a copy of what Moses saw in heaven, he had a vision of heaven, and they made the tabernacle, and it was a, a shadow or a copy of what was real in the heavenly places, and outside the tabernacle and later outside the temple, there was a basin of water, and it had a functional purpose. But I think partly what that's reflecting is this vision that John sees here. So that's the setting. Now let's talk about the congregation. Uh, Look with me at verse 7 and verse 8. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. The fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, we'll come back to the song in a minute. Verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who's seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who's seated on the throne, and they worship Him who lives forever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying... And there's song number two that we'll circle back to in just a minute. So there's a congregation in this vision. And the congregation is 24 elders and four living creatures. 24 elders and four living creatures. Who are the elders? There's two possibilities. They're either redeemed humans or they represent angelic creatures. Those are the two main options. So let me just argue for each of those quickly, and then you can flip a coin and pick who you think they are. Okay? I am inclined to think at first glance that these 24 elders are representative of human beings. And the reason that people will give is that, well, there's 12 tribes in the Old Testament, Twelve apostles in the New Testament. Twelve and twelve is twenty-four. That's pretty simple math. Uh, The tribes were human beings. The apostles were human beings. Um, They are described as having garments and crowns and thrones. And if you go back to Revelation 2 and 3, letters to the churches made up of people, they are promised at various times garments and thrones and crowns. Those things are promised to human beings. And they're described as presenting their crowns before the throne, which is a very human image that would have been familiar to them, especially as Roman citizens. They would have been very familiar with the idea of lesser kings presenting their crowns to Caesar as the great king. So one possibility when you read about the elders is that this is a picture of redeemed humanity. The fullness of God's people. Old Covenant and New Covenant. The tribes, the apostles united together. Now, many Bible scholars say they're not representative of redeemed humans. They're representative of angelic beings. And as much as I'd like to lean towards the first view, I will just say that my all-time two favorite New Testament scholars... One dead, one living. Shriner living, lad dead. They both think these are angels. So those are my guys. It's hard for me to go against my guys. Um, these 24 beings consistently here and in Revelation 5, they speak about redemption in the third person. You would think redeemed human beings, Humanity, redeemed human beings would speak about redemption in the first person. We were redeemed. First person plural, we. But they consistently use the third person. You redeemed people. So maybe there's a little bit of distance there. And the 24 elders are always associated with the four living creatures. And I'll move on to the next point. The creatures very likely represent the angelic realm. Virtually all New Testament scholars agree about that. And the elders always show up together with the creatures. The description of these creatures is basically a mashup of Ezekiel 10 and Isaiah 6. Cherubim and seraphim. The images are sort of mixed and muddled, um, and those are both visions of angelic beings. So here's what Schreiner says. Though there are dimensions of the verse that elude our grasp, meaning, who are the elders? I don't know. Are they humans? Are they angels? I don't know. It eludes our grasp. The most important element is the exclamation of the living creatures, echoing the words of the seraphim in Isaiah 6, 3, They proclaim that the God sitting on the throne is the thrice holy one. The whole scene at the throne communicates God's terrifying and beautiful holiness. He is utterly exalted above his creatures and is distinct from human beings. No one enters his presence lightly or casually. So that brings us to song number one and two. Song number one is the second part of verse eight. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Verse 11, song number 2, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and they were created. So just a couple of notes on these songs. Song number 1, the precedence is Isaiah 6, and it gives glory to God for who He is. God is worshipped For who he is, not for anything that he's done or will do, but simply for who he is. And the emphasis in Isaiah 6 and in Revelation 4 is on the holiness of God. This is what Bible scholars call the trisagion. It's God being described as holy, holy, holy. And you know, if you've been around church any length of time, that's the highest degree, it's the strongest way of saying something. For a Hebrew speaker. It's not that God is love, love, love. Or just, just, just. Or good, good, good. But that it's most basically. Most fundamentally. He's holy, holy, holy. That's the bedrock essence of who he is. It's the thing that makes God, God. And it's celebrated once to this degree in the Old Testament. And once to this degree in the New Testament. Both involving visions and angels. And sort of apocalyptic type writing. Song number two has its roots in Genesis 1 and 2, and it gives glory to God for the work of creation. So, Revelation 4, first part of the vision, the theophany, there's a throne, someone seated on the throne. There's this angelic congregation worshiping around the throne, and God is being worshiped, number one, for who He is, And number two for the fact that He's the Creator. So Schreiner says this, the book of Revelation reveals both who God is and what He does. Maybe the best place to start is the throne room vision in chapter 4 where God is worshipped as Creator of all.